0: Stanford University.
1: So I'm pleased to be here uh, today uh, and to welcome you to the first of two Tanner Lectures in Human Values, given this year by Mark Danner, journalist, professor, and author, whose writings have examined American foreign policy and international conflict. Before I introduce Professor Danner, I'd like to recognize the people who organized Uh, this year's lectures, so please join me in thanking the members of the Bowen H. McCoy Family Center for Ethics and Society and the Tanner Lectures Steering Committee for their time and efforts. We're very pleased to be able to offer the Tanner Lectures at Stanford. Professor Obert Clark Tanner was an industrialist and legal scholar who studied uh, philosophy at Harvard and at Stanford and then later served as a member of Stanford's Department of Religious Studies. In establishing the lecture lecture series in 1978, Professor Tanner said that he hoped, quote, to contribute to the intellectual and moral life of mankind and provide a better understanding of human behavior and human values. I can't imagine a more appropriate choice than this year's Tanner Lecturer. An investigative journalist whose work regularly appears in the New York Review of Books, the New York Times Magazine, and other publications Mark Danner is also on the faculty of the University of California at Berkeley and at Bard College. Over the course of his career, he's reported on conflicts in every corner of the world, from the consequences of America's loss in Vietnam, to the wars in the Balkans, to the long history of crises in in Haiti. Since September 11, 2001, he's focused his efforts on the war on terror, the Iraq War and the Red Cross report on interrogation techniques used by the CIA. Whatever his topic, he's consistently uh, generated debate and discussion on important human issues and has earned great critical acclaim. In 1993, the New Yorker's December 6th issue consisted of a single article, Danner's piece detailing the horrors uh, of the massacres at El Mozote, El Salvador, and the world's response. That article garnered the Overseas Press Club Award and a Latin American Studies Association Award, and when it was published as a book the following year, the New York Times Book Review named it as one of the notable books of the year. Four years later, the Overseas Press Club recognized his work once again, calling his articles for the New York Review of Books on the Wars in the Balkans, the best reporting from abroad of 1998. In 1999, he was named a MacArthur Fellow. After the horrific events of September 11th, Professor Danner turned his attention to the War on Terror. A series of articles for the New York Review of Books evolved into a book, Torture and Truth, America, Abu Ghraib, and the War on Terror. The Overseas Press Club awarded it the 2004 Madeleine Dane Ross Prize for the best book on current affairs. Uh, Mark, you must have an in with them. The following year, his essays on the secret minutes of a meeting, uh, on the secret meetings of a minute, about, minute secret minutes of a meeting about the Iraq war among British officials were collected into the Secret Way to War," the Downing Street memo and the Iraq War's Buried History. In 2006, the American Political Science Association presented him with the Kerry McWilliams Award for major journal, a major journalistic uh, contribution to our understanding of politics. Last spring, Professor Danner published his first essay on the then unreleased uh, report of the International Committee of the Red Cross. That article, U.S. Torture, Voices from the Black Sites, provided detailed and disturbing testimony given to the ICRC by detainees held by the CIA at secret prisons that have come to be known as Black Sites. From the opening sentence, In his subsequent article, The Red Cross Report, What It Means, Mark Danner makes it clear that America cannot move forward or turn away from the difficult moral questions raised by what occurred. I quote, when it comes to torture, it it is not what we did, but what we are doing. It is not what happened, but what is happening and what will happen. In our politics, Torture is not about whether or not our polity can let the past be past. Torture is more than specific techniques. It is a critical issue in the present of our politics. For many in the United States, torture still stands as a marker of political commitment, of a willingness to do anything to protect the American people. End quote. Most recently, Professor Danner uh, published Stripping Bear the Body, the, Stripping Bear the Body Politics, Violence, War, a collection of wide-ranging essays on the global landscape. Adam Hornchild writes that in Stripping Bare the Body, quote, "Mark, Mark Danner has truly chronicled what Conrad in The Heart of Darkness called the dark places of the earth, some of which are uncomfortably close to home. It is what we have come to expect from a Mark Danner piece. His unrelenting scrutiny, Considerable investigative skills and strong moral code illuminate the dark corners of humankind and provoke us to think deeply about our personal and political ethics. Today, his topic is Imposing the State of Exception, Constitutional Dictatorship, Torture, and Us. Tomorrow, at 10 a.m., Professor Danner will participate in a discussion seminar led by Eric Posner, Professor of Law at the University of Chicago, and Colonel Stephen Kleinman, Senior Intelligence Officer in the U.S. Air Force. The second Tanner Lecture will be held at this time tomorrow when he will discuss, quote, uh, discuss naturalizing the state of exception, terror, fear, and the war without end. And on Friday morning at 10 o'clock he will join Elaine Scarry, Professor of Aesthetics and the General Theory of Value at Harvard, and Stephen Holmes, professor of law at New York University, in a discussion seminar. Now, I encourage all of you to attend as many of these events as you can. This is not the first time that we've welcomed Mark Danner to Stanford. In 2006, he participated in uh, the symposium, Thinking Humanity After Abu Ghraib, and we certainly hope that this will not be his last. Please join me in welcoming Mark Danner back to Stanford. Thanks very much.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Provost Echimendi. That was an extremely (laughs) generous um, and capacious introduction. Um, I, I, you know, whenever I hear uh, that kind of introduction, I have this thought: I wish my mother was here to hear it, Um, because I. I feel like it will make up for some of the horrors I inflicted on her growing up, as a you know, not making my bed and everything else I've I've done. I, she's on my mind uh, uh, increasingly lately because I dedicated uh, this book to her. Um, in fact, the dedication reads uh, to my mother uh, in partial answer to her persistent question, "Why can't you go somewhere nice for a change?" Um, <clears throat> she particularly liked that. Um, So, I wish she was here. Uh, Thank you very much, Provost. Uh, I wanna thank uh, President John Hennessy, the organizers of uh, these lectures who worked so hard, Deborah Satz and Joan Berry, uh, have been wonderful. The Tanner Committee, the McCoy Family Center for Ethics and Society, uh, the trustees of the Tanner Lectures on Human Values. Uh, I'm particularly pleased to be here because my great longtime mentor, Frank Kermode, Uh, about 20 years ago. He was my uh, tutor in college, and he did the tanners over on the other side of the bay at Berkeley. So it was a particular treat for me to get this invitation and to feel like I'm following just a little bit in his very uh, large footsteps. I'd like to thank finally um, Colonel Kleinman, Eric Posner, Stephen Holmes, and Elaine Scarry uh, for uh, agreeing to come and, and talk about this issue. It's a terrific group of people. Uh, respondents and I'm honored um, and humbled that they're here well that's the happy part of my talk Um, and now we'll go uh, to the serious part Um, we are living today in the state of exception we don't know when it will end uh, as we don't know when the war on terror will end but we all know when it began We remember the perfect blue of the late summer sky, stained by the acrid black smoke of that burning building. We remember the second jetliner appearing, tilting, and then disappearing into the skin of that great skyscraper and emerging on the other side as a great eruption of red and yellow flame. We remember the vast showers of debris, the falling bodies, and then that great, blossoming, exploding flower of white dust roiling and churning upward, enveloping and consuming the mighty skyscraper until in that impossible image, it trembles and collapses into the white whirlwind. These were unforgettable moments of transformation, of metamorphosis. For the towers, which were transmogrified before our disbelieving eyes from massive steel and concrete structures into great plumes of heaven-seeking dust. For thousands of families, slashed apart as husbands, fathers, sisters, brothers were ripped from them in an almost unbearably public moment of incomprehensible violence. And finally, a metamorphosis for our country, for all of us as Americans whose identity as citizens and perhaps uh, was irrevocably uh, and subtly and perhaps irrevocably altered. Those terrible moments which we watched together formed a kind of brightly lit portal and time through which we were all compelled to step together into a different world since that day nine years ago we have lived in a subtly different country and though we've grown accustomed to these changes and think little of them now certain words appear often enough in the news guantanamo indefinite detention torture to remind us that ours remains a strange America. The contours of this strangeness are not at all unknown in our history. The countries lived through broadly similar periods, at least half a dozen or so, depending on how you count, but we have no proper name for them. State of siege, martial law, state of emergency. None of these expressions, uh, familiar as they may be to the French or the British, to many other peoples, fall naturally from American lips. They are not found in our constitution. They're seldom heard in our political talk. So what are we to call this strangely and subtly altered America, this way we live now? Clinton Rossiter, the great American scholar of crisis government, writing in the shadow of World War II, called such times constitutional dictatorship. Others more recently have spoken of a 9-11 constitution or an emergency constitution. These are vivid terms, and yet, maybe because I'm not a lawyer or a constitutional scholar but simply a journalist and a writer who's interested in war and politics, I find them too narrowly drawn, placing as they do the definitional weight uh, mainly on the law when this state of ours seems to me to have as much to do, more to do perhaps with politics, with how we live now and who we are as a polity. That's in part why I prefer the phrase the state of exception an umbrella term which gathers beneath it these emergency terms uh, and categories, while emphasizing that this state has as its defining characteristic that it transcends the borders of the strictly legal. It occupies, in the words of Giorgio Agamben in his book of the same name, quote, a position at the limit between politics and law, an ambiguous, uncertain, borderline fringe at the intersection of the legal and the political. Let's call it then the state of exception, those years during which, in the name of security, some of our accustomed rights and freedoms are circumscribed or set aside. This different time of, now, of ours has now extended nearly nine years, the longest in American history, with little sense of its ending. Indeed, the very endlessness of our state of exception and the broad acceptance of this end- endlessness, the state of, acceptance, state of exception's increasing normalization are among its distinguishing marks. Every state of exception, of course, has its distinctive attributes. We remember President Wilson imprisoning or deporting thousands who spoke against the country's entry into World War I, Franklin Roosevelt interning 110,000 Japanese Americans, most of them citizens, Abraham Lincoln suspending the writ of habeas corpus. Of course, we remember these because they were controversial actions whose wisdom and propriety lawyers and historians still debate, yet they comprise only a small subset of the actions taken by these presidents to impose a state of exception during a time of war. When we consider the state of exception that began that bright September morning, and that continues today, we can point not only to open-endedness and normalization, to its permanent embedding as part of our politics, but also to its, its subtlety For the overwhelming majority of Americans, the changes are subtle. Uh, Officially sanctioned torture, or if you will, enhanced interrogation, however dramatic a departure it may be from our history, happens not to Americans, but to others. And the particular burdens of our exception seem mostly to be borne by someone else. It's possible for most to live their lives without taking taking note of one of them at all, except as phrases in the news until every once in a while, like a blind man who lives all unknowingly in a very large cage, one or another of us stumbles into the bars. Whenever we take the time to peer closely at the space contained within those bars, we can see our country has been altered in fundamental ways. When President Barack Obama, in his elegant address, accepting the Nobel Peace Prize, declares to the world that he has prohibited torture, we should pause to notice that torture violates international and domestic law. And the notion that our new president has the power to prohibit it follows insidiously from the pretense that his predecessor had the power to order it. That during the the near decade-long state of exception, not only because of what George W. Bush decided to do, but also because of what President Obama is every day deciding not to do to look, that is, not to look back, but to look forward, torture in America has metamorphosed from an anathema to a policy choice. So when it comes to the state of exception, our first task must be to notice the bars of the cage. They can be represented, of course, as a series of laws and executive orders, beginning with the authorization of the use of military force passed by Congress one week after September 11th, To the President's Memorandum of Notification um, the day before, authorizing the CIA to capture, detain, and interrogate prisoners. To Congress's passing the following month, the USA Patriot Act. To the President's military order of November 13th, withholding Geneva, in effect, withholding Geneva Convention protection from detainees and the War on Terror. And one could go on with that list. Now, it's interesting to compile such lists and debate what should be on them. I've done that before, but I want to do something rather different today, uh, which is uh, to begin with a list of what seemed to me the most important political and, as it were, stylistic elements of our state of exception. Though faced with the events of September 11th, any president, Al Gore or anyone else, would have imposed some form of state of exception. No one but George W. Bush could have imposed precisely this one. So I'm going to ask with the Jesuits, what is its quiddity? What is its whatness? What can we identify as the state of exceptions, particular traits, its distinguishing characteristics? I'm going to list eight of them. They've involved, evolved and intertwined over the years, and they form, I would say, a kind of penumbra today, of ex- penumbra of exception around the normal functioning of our politics. First and most obviously, declaring the war on terror. That is redefining the effort to protect the country from terrorists as a war, purporting to separate this war deliberately and cleanly from how the US government had treated terrorism up until that moment. Second, defining this war as unbounded in space and time. That is proclaiming under the Bush doctrine that terrorists would be attacked wherever they might be found, that any states harboring them would be considered enemies and liable to attack along with the terrorists, that a state's support for terrorism would put it on the other side of a kind of us and them ideological dividing line, strongly recalling, not coincidentally, that of the Cold War, with terrorists transformed in effect into the new communists, um, and that the war would not conclude until all terrorist groups of global, global reach were destroyed which could only be, if ever, in the very indefinite future. Third, redefining terrorists, not only as, in, as combatants, thus withholding from them the protections of the criminal law, but as unlawful combatants or illegal enemy combatants, thus depriving them of the protection of the laws of war, including the Geneva Conventions, and thereby transforming anyone designating a ter- designated terrorist into a new kind of being understood to enjoy the protection of no laws whatever, transforming the person so designated from human being to, in Agamben's terms, quote, the object of a pure de facto rule. Fourth, broadly imposing the so-called preventative paradigm, as publicly described by the Attorney General shortly after 9-11, which shifted the focus of arrest, detention, and also military attack into the realm of aggressive, preemptive, and pre- preventative action, and thus downgrading such traditional legal and evidentiary tests as probable cause, adversarial, judicial, and administrat- administrative procedures, and also, in the case of war, imminence of threat, and a consequent emphasis on eliminating risk at the expense of both marshaling proof and gathering information. Fifth narrowly grounding the legitimacy of large parts of the state of exception on the president's inherent powers alone, pushing to extend the realm of those powers and excluding the other branches and the minority power party. Sixth, making use in multifarious and creative ways of the powers of secrecy, both when it comes to the mix of information offered to and withheld from the public, and I'm gonna call some aspects of this public secrecy, and information disseminated within the government itself, where momentous and consequential decisions are often made by a handful of officials, circumventing the relevant bureaucracies, agencies, and experts. Further narrowing the input of information and producing, producing in turn a reliance on, and this is seventh, improvising solutions to large and complicated problems. Producing policies and methods that are, that are often amateurish, because of lack of expertise and consultation and difficult to sustain, both practically and politically, including within the government itself. And finally, eighth, embedding the war on terror in the political struggle between the two parties and making increasingly blunt use of it as a political trump, especially but not only during the run up to elections. Now this last attribute in particular remains today a striking part of our politics, perhaps arguably the most striking part, but I would argue that all eight in their complex intertwining haunt us still. This is by no means a uh, complete list. It's idiosyncratic, I admit, but I'm hoping to make a distinctive, I'm hoping to trace a distinctive mode of acting, behaving, and reacting. Call it again, the style of the exception and go some way toward exploring the workings of our particular state of exception, not only as it was imposed during Bush's first term, but as it matured during his second and as it has evolved and been transformed under President Obama. For these eight factors as they combined and evolved went far to producing the trademark phrases of the exception that we still hear echoing like drumbeats in our news. War on terror, preventive war, worldwide conflict, preventive detention, material support for terrorism, warrantless wiretapping, extraordinary rendition, national security letters, unlawful combatants, indefinite detention, military commissions, targeted assassination, alternative set of procedures, enhanced interrogation techniques, torture. I'll be focusing on that last. I woke up naked, strapped to a bed in a very white room, the room measured approximately four meters by four meters. The room had three solid walls, with a fourth wall consisting of metal bars separating it from a larger room. I'm not sure how long I remained on the bed. After some time, I think it was several days, but can't remember exactly, I was transferred to a chair, where I was kept shackled by the hands and feet for what I think was the next two to three weeks. During this time, I developed blisters on the underside of my legs due to the constant sitting I was given no solid food during the first two to three weeks while sitting on the chair. I was only given insure and water to drink. At first the insure made me vomit, but this became less with time. The cell and room were air conditioned and were very cold. Very loud shouting type music was constantly playing. It kept repeating about every 15 minutes, 24 hours a day. Sometimes the music stopped and was replaced by a loud hissing or crackling noise. During this first two- to three-week period, I was questioned for about one to two hours each day. American interrogators would come to the room and speak to me through the bars of the cell. During the questioning, the music was switched off but was then put on again afterwards. I could not sleep at all for the first two to three weeks. If I started to fall asleep, one of the guards would come and spray water in my face. So, a naked man chained to a chair in a very cold white room where he's bombarded hour after hour, day after day, night after night, with sound and with light. There's no day, no night, nothing but paralysis, cold, brightness, sound. Oceans of time flow over him, but he's denied sleep. Two weeks, he thinks, three weeks. In fact, we know, we know much more than he does, that after it was 11 successive days and nights without sleep, and after that he began as the documents report, to come apart. By now, sometime in the summer of 2002, as he sits woozy and drooling, cha- chained naked to that chair, and though he doesn't know it, Zain al-Abidin Muhammad Hussein is a famous man. His knowledge and status debated in the world's press and argued over in the White House. When he was captured on March 28, 2002, in a spectacular raid in Faisalabad, Pakistan, during which he leapt from a building Uh, from a building's rooftop and was shot three times. The man we now know as Abu Zubaydah, of Saudi birth and Palestinian nationality, had just turned 31. His capture was a trophy in the war on terror. For as Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld told the world a couple days later, Abu Zubaydah was quote, a close associate of Osama bin Laden, and if not the number two, very close to the number two person in the organization. I think, said Rumsfeld, that's well established. Bracket that phrase, well established. What we actually know about Abu Zubaydah, and even more what we know he knows, will become a matter of intense debate. At this point, we know he has bullet wounds in his thigh, stomach, and groin, that he's losing a large amount of blood, that he falls into a coma. On the other side of the world in Baltimore, a trauma surgeon's awakened by an urgent call from the CIA director, rushed to a private jet, flown around the world, where he manages just barely to save the prisoner's life. Abu Zubaydah, bleeding still unconscious, will be carried off to a famously undisclosed location, and his whereabouts will remain a closely guarded secret, not least to him, even as he sits several months later, chained immobile and woozy in his white room. Once again, we know a bit more than he does. The room is likely on a military base in Thailand, but in any event, on one of the so-called black sites, that the CIA improvised hurriedly in the days after September 11th, secret prisons in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Romania, Morocco, Poland, Lithuania, and perhaps elsewhere to hold and interrogate prisoners pursuant to President Bush's order, which gave this task to the CIA, an agency that had had little to do with detention or interrogation for two decades or more. So the critically wounded Abu Zubaydah has disappeared into secrecy, But in fact, all that's secret is his location, that he was in American hands being interrogated in an undisclosed location. This was known, discussed, debated, gloated over. This peculiar fiction of public secrecy allows the government to withhold not only not mainly information from the public, though narrow and vital bits of it are withheld, but responsibility and liability from itself. Not officially acknowledging it has possession of the man and eventually of scores more such prisoners, the United States will reject all claims that it has any obligation to account for them or to answer for their treatment, as many countries have done in the case of their own disappeared. Without legal status or even government acknowledgement that they're alive and in custody, such prisoners become the objects, as Agamben said, of pure de facto rule of a detention that is indefinite, not only in the, temporal sense, but in its very nature. That is, we've reached, when it comes to detainees, the opposite end of the spectrum from the liberal idea of a government inherently limited in its powers. A few days later, Abu Zubaydah awakens from his coma to find at his bedside in this unfamiliar location in an unknown country a man he doesn't know who asks him his name. Abu Zubaydah shakes his head. He's heard the American accent. And I asked him again in Arabic, remember John Kiriakou, the CIA, and then he answered me in English, and he said he would not speak to me in God's language. And I said, that's okay, we know who you are. They did not quite know, as it happens. The facts that Secretary Rumsfeld had crowed about at the Pentagon were well established, were not facts at all. Abu Zubaydah was not a close associate of Osama bin Laden, nor the number two, nor even very close to the number two person in the organization, nor as the Department of Justice recently admitted in court documents, did he have any role or advanced knowledge of the 9-11 attacks, nor was he a member of the organization or formally identified with it at all. To the US government desperate for information on Al-Qaeda six months after the attacks on Washington and New York, he seemed, however, a very rich prize indeed as Abu Zubaydah seemed to recognize, according to Kiriakou's accounting of the initial bedside interview. And then he asked me, recalled Kiriakou, to smother him with a pillow. And I said, no, mm-mm, we have plans for you. The plans even then were being fought over. The interrogation would be led at this initial stage by two experienced interrogators from the FBI using so-called traditional methods helping nurse the wounded man back to health, changing his bandages, washing his wounds, building a relationship, respect, trust, rapport, etc. One of these men, Lebanese-born Ali Soufan, would startle the prisoner by addressing him as Hani, the nickname his mother had used when he was a child. Soufan is argued strenuously, first as an unnamed source for journalists, and now in newspaper articles and congressional testimony in his own name, that all the valuable information that was gained from Abu Zubaydah, including the identity of the so-called dirty bomber, Jose Padilla, and the code name of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, was gained in those initial discussions. Traditional interrogation, he and his colleagues contend, was working. Others in the government, particularly in the CIA, did not believe it. They were convinced, as the Justice Department report has it, that, quote, he was not telling all he knew. How did they come to this conclusion? It's a fascinating, at this point, unanswered question. We're back to the calculation of knowledge and of risk. For unlike the famous parable of the ticking bomb, in which officials know everything except one small detail, where the bomb is, in the real world, it's the vast unknowns we fear, the deserts of ignorance, unbounded by any certain facts. Donald Rumsfeld famously distinguished between the known unknowns, what we know we don't know, which can be frightening, and the unknown unknowns, what we don't even know, we don't know, which can be terrifying. That terror was embodied in a simple calculus well described by the CIA Inspector General in 2004. Field interrogators judged that headquarters assessment, that detainees are withholding information are not always supported by an objective evaluation of available information, but are too heavily based instead on presumptions of what the individual might or should know. And again, lack of knowledge led analysts to speculate about what, what a detainee should know versus information the analyst would objectively demonstrate the detainee did know. When a detainee did not respond to a question posed to him, the assumption at headquarters was that the detainee was holding back and knew more. Consequently, headquarters recommended resumption of enhanced interrogation techniques. In an atmosphere of fear and anxiety, this may seem the prudent course. And make no mistake, the critical decisions laying the basis for the state of exception were taken in a state of fear and anxiety. How could they not have been? We remember Richard Clark's vivid account of the atmosphere in the basement bunker of the White House that day, when a jetliner was hurtling toward Washington to demolish at any moment the building above. And the days that followed, the mysterious and terrifying anthrax attacks, the series of security alerts, threat warnings, emanations of the second wave attacks coming at any moment, every day the president and other senior officials received the threat matrix, a document that could be dozens of pages long listing every threat directed at the United States that had been sucked up during the last 24 hours by the vast electronic and human vacuum cleaner of information that was US intelligence warnings of catastrophic weapons, conventional attacks, planned attacks on allies, plots of every description and level of seriousness. George Tenen said, you simply could not sit where I sat and be other than scared to death about what this portended. One official compared reading that matrix every day in an example of the ironic mirroring one finds everywhere in this particular story to quote, being stuck in a room listening to loud Led Zeppelin music which leads to century overload and paranoia. This is the government talking. He compared the task of defending the country to playing goalie in a game in which the goalie must stop every shot and in which all the opposing players and the boundary lines and the field are invisible. All this bespeaks, of course, not only an all-encompassing anxiety about information, about the lack of map rooms, displaying the movements of armies, the maddening absence of visible identifiable threats, but also I think about guilt over what had already happened, what had been allowed to happen. One must venture into this, or I will venture in any event, into this psychopolitical realm, treacherous as it is, to begin to understand the Bush administration's particular crafting of the state of exception. The insistence on the clear dividing line between the law enforcement paradigm of the past and the war on terror that had been declared in the wake of the attacks. For an administration that had begun life with a grave legitimacy problem, whose president had won half a million fewer votes than his opponent and gained the White House only after a bitterly divided Supreme Court had stepped in to, to end an historic five week political struggle, for this administration, the bright line between past policy and the newly declared war on terror was in part meant to banish the attacks themselves to the realm of the irresponsible past and the responsibility of the other party. That an attack was coming, of course, had been predicted. The director of Central Intelligence famously strode about the halls of government during the summer of 2001 with his, quote, hair on fire. US intelligence agencies briefed uh, President George Bush, Bush at his Crawford ranch on August 6th with a briefing entitled, Bin Laden determined to strike within the United States and of course White House Terrorism Coordinator Richard Clark, who despite desperate efforts, something really spectacular is going to happen here, he declared to domestic national security agency heads on July 5th, and it's going to happen soon, could not persuade national security advisor Condoleezza Rice even to schedule the administration's first meeting on the Al-Qaeda threat until the week before 9-11. One will never know whether had Bush officials worked to focus the security agencies of the government on those threats during the summer of 2001, whether the attacks might have been prevented. Even without that pressure, they came terrifyingly, uh, tragically, tragically close. Still, the declaration of the war on terror banished the attacks to before the war on terror, to the failed realm of the so-called law enforcement model, which the Bush administration, of course, had inherited from the previous Democratic administration. The failure thus could now be understood to belong mostly to them, to their methods, a dichotomy that's been enshrined in the politics of the exception, as we've seen vividly since the inauguration of Barack Obama. Uh, For example, in the political warfare surrounding the arrest of the so-called underwear bomber last Christmas day. It's no accident that in the wake of that attempted attack, both Dana Perino, the former Bush administration spokeswoman and former New York Mayor Rudolph Giuliani made statements suggesting that, in Giuliani's words, we had no domestic attacks under Bush. An astonishing assertion, needless to say, given that more Americans died from terrorist attacks during that administration than during all others combined, but entirely comprehensible if you believe that the administration, as Perino put it, inherited the most tragic attack on our soil in the nation's history. Since those attacks occurred before the war on terror, they occurred under a democratic policy of law enforcement that in fact was not Bush's. For that was before. When terrorism wasn't treated as the warfare, it was. Now the gloves came off. This resonant and off-heard phrase uttered most prominently by Kofer Black, all you need to know there was a before 9-11 and an after 9-11. After 9 11, the gloves came off. That phrase encapsulates much of the psychopolitical content of the state of exception. That the gloves came off after the attacks meant, obviously, that before the attacks, the gloves were on. What exactly were those gloves? Improper limitations on the president's power to conduct foreign policy, the Hughes Ryan Act and its successor, the Intelli- Intelligence Oversight Act of 1980 limiting the president's power to conduct covert action with deniability, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, requiring applications to a special court for a warrant eavesdrop on Americans, those and other limitations of the two most important officials constructing the state of exception, Vice President Cheney, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld, had watched as young senior officials of the Nixon and Ford administration as Congress imposed them on a wounded executive in the wake of the loss of the Vietnam War, the Watergate scandal, the resignation of Richard Nixon, and the CIA dirty tricks revelations of the Church Committee. Twain says, of course, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And it seems to me we should consider that the time of the imposition of the state of exception in the early 2000s constitutes a kind of reverse rhyme with the post-Vietnam 1970s, when his president, Vice President Cheney told reporters uh, after the secret wiretapping program was, was, was revealed in 2004, Watergate and a lot of the things around Watergate and Vietnam, both during the 70s, served to erode the authority the president needs to be effective, especially in the national security area. So the gloves coming off meant not only a vital freeing of the president's hands, but a corresponding blaming of the success of those attacks on the laws that had handcuffed him. The stripping off of the gloves was a sign of commitment, of a determination to sweep away those inherited limitations that had, so the implicit argument went, let the terrorists succeed in the first place. For President Bush and his administration, the stripping off of gloves was a shedding of guilt, and in its shedding, the affirmation that at the end of the day, the true responsibility belonged to those who had put the gloves on the president in the first place and had insisted on using the legal system to coddle terrorists. That this phrase so clearly echoes time-honored Republican rhetoric denouncing Democrats supposed softness on criminals and that it remains with us still suggests how strongly embedded this aspect of the state of exception has become in our domestic politics. This is not to say these policies were shaped to win elections, I'm not saying that at all, only that they fit very well into the post-civil rights era, post-Vietnam political reality that all knew, and that Karl Rove had first enunciated publicly four months after the attacks, when he said to the Republican National Committee, Americans trust Republicans to do a better job of keeping our communities and our families safe. We can go to the country on this issue, because they trust the Republicans to protect and strengthen America's military might and thereby protect America. This is four months after 9-11. The national security trump that the Republicans had lost with the end of the Cold War a decade before had been returned to their hands. That fall, using powerful rhetoric that emphasized the gravity of the ongoing threat and the fact that only his administration and his party could adequately protect America, The president, under whose leadership the country had suffered the most devastating attacks in its history, achieved what almost no first-term presidents have before. He led his party to a decisive victory in the midterm elections. In the dark shadow of the 9-11 attacks, the Republicans won back control of the Senate. As for the leaders of the new war on terror, they would not be, quote, reading terrorists, their Miranda rights. would launch their new war on terror with an unblemished record, since during the war on terror there had been no attacks, unlike under the Democrats' law enforcement model, and a willingness, a commitment to do whatever it took. That meant gaining the most vital information, the most vital fuel, information. When it came to the interrogation of Abu Zubaydah, the victor in the struggle between the FBI and the traditional law enforcement models and the CIA and its improvised protocol was preordained. The judgment would seem to be built on evidence, on the thinness of what the detainee was providing, but in fact was based on conviction. As the CIA inspector general admitted, that is, on lack of knowledge. Abu Zubaydah was known to be a high official in Al Qaeda, so he would know, wouldn't he, of the second wave's attacks that were coming. If he gives up only modest bits of information, mustn't that very fact mean that he's concealing things that are important? The conviction of secret knowledge set beside the paucity of what is revealed proves the conclusion of deception. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Uh, This chain of reasoning, of course, uh, is familiar to everybody. The fact that UN inspectors can find no weapons in Iraq is confirmation of the fact that Saddam is hiding them. The argument escalated between the interrogators at the dark sites and back in Washington. CIA officers led by two contractors who had been Air Force instructors in the so-called SEER program, a program designed to prepare downed pilots for hostile interrogation, prepared an interrogation plan for the detainee, and it was passed to CIA headquarters, discussed in the White House, and by May 14th, the National uh, National Security Advisor confirmed that the plan could go forward subject to Justice Department approval. At the Department of Justice, Deputy Assistant Attorney General John Yu and a young colleague were working furiously on a memorandum that weighed the legality of these 12 proposed techniques against the statutes of the U.S. Criminal Code and the international undertakings that forbid torture. Their memos went through a number of drafts. Bring the bad things memo, Yu emailed his young colleague just before the approval was given. I like your new name for it, she replied brightly in the email. Meantime, on April 27th, readers of Newsweek could ask themselves, in the words of the magazine's web-exclusive, how good is Abu Zubaydah's information, and learn that though one senior U.S. official claimed that the prisoner was providing detailed information, this is a quote, from the fight against terrorism, this official, unnamed, was presumably from the FBI, Another, this one, a U.S. intelligence source, presumably CIA, suspected he was, quote, trying to mislead investigators or frighten the American public. Though this highest of high-value detainees was being held in the strictest secrecy at an undetermined location, this didn't seem to prevent his interrogators or their bureaucratic overlords from leaking information from him directly into the U.S. press. Eventually, those who could point to the desert of knowledge who could point out and profit from the fear of the unknown were victorious, and indeed nothing more dramatically embodies the style of the exception. Assume the worst, act preemptively, aggressively. Don't hesitate. If there's a risk, the possible consequences are so grave that you must not let worries over evidence slow you down. This kind of thinking reached a kind of apotheosis in Vice President Cheney's so-called 1% doctrine, which was summarized by the writer Ron Suskind as follows. If there was even a one percent chance of terrorists getting a weapon of mass destruction the United States must now act as if it was a certainty. This remarkable attitude toward risk that only lack of action and not mistaken action posed dangers had a peculiar and contradictory effect when embodied in the vast worldwide detention regime spawned by the state of exception. We're talking about The 5,000 who were arrested and detained by the Immigration and Naturalization Service here in the US. Tens of thousands um, detained in Abu Ghraib and Bagram and other prisoners in Iraq and Afghanistan. The hundreds detained in Guantanamo. The scores detained in the black sites. The system in its entirety at one time held almost 100,000 detainees. I shall call this effect the broken funnel prisoners were swept into the system often on very flimsy or no evidence and once in it stayed there, clogging and debilitating it. For there was not only no adversary system to judge their guilt or threat, a system that had it existed, whether administrative or judicial, would at least have had the effect of forcing the gathering of information. There was no incentive at all to release them. On the contrary, among those officers in Afghanistan charged with deciding what prisoners should be shipped to Guantanamo, according to one interrogator, quote, there was great fear among them that they were going to somehow manage to release somebody who would later turn out to be the 20th hijacker. So there was real concern and a real, real erring on the conservative side. That is, there was no incentive to release anyone. With the result that, as Lawrence Wilkerson, who was Secretary of State Powell's former chief of staff discovered in the summer of 2002, that this is Wilkinson talking in in court documents a few days ago, of the initial 742 detainees that had arrived at Guantanamo, the majority of them had never seen a US soldier in the process of their initial detention, and their captivity had not been subjected to any meaningful review. You'll remember that these people were called the worst of the worst uh, by Donald Rumsfeld. Wilkinson again, often absolutely no evidence relating to the detainee was turned over. So there was no real method of knowing why the prisoner had been detained in the first place. One sees parallels to this throughout the detention regime of the state of exception. For example, in Abu Ghraib, where according to an officer on the detainee assessment board, 85 to 90%, again, this is a quote, 85 to 90% of the detainees were of no intelligence value. We're talking about 20,000 or so prisoners in Abu Ghraib. 85 to 90% were of no intelligence value. And where this, quote, failure to sort out the valuable detainees from the innocents, who should have been released soon after capture, led ultimately to less actionable intelligence. This is the Fay Report, the military report. The style of the exception was embodied in aggressive action. When in doubt, act. When suspicious, detain, ask questions later. But the sweeping arrests and indefinite detention, the failure to make discriminations of risk, which would have meant a willingness to get it wrong, in favor of wholesale sweeping judgments based on pervasive fear, had the contradictory effect of crippling the intelligence gathering system itself. That system was flooded with detainees who literally knew nothing and who could not be released either because, as in Abu Ghraib, the officers who were responsible for detaining them objected, or because, as Wilkerson says, it was politically impossible to release them, in part because the detention efforts at Guantanamo would be revealed as the incredibly confused operation that they were. So you have fear of political damage essentially screwing up the entire interrogation system. The injustice of the system, of course, was pervasive, And this was increasingly recognized around the world and had its own grave political effects in what was, after all, a political war. But it's important to recognize that it failed on its own terms. A system meant to be gathering the most vital and precious resource to fight the existential dangers of the war on terror, gathering that as information, in fact was debilitating itself. Sometime in the late spring of 2002, Abu Zubaydah was moved from the relatively civilized administrations of Ali Sufan, his FBI colleagues, stripped naked and taken to the very cold, very bright white room. When Sufan discovered the prisoner naked, he angrily protested. Soon after, he and his colleagues were withdrawn by the Justice Department. Henceforth, the FBI's experts, the most experienced interrogators and the government, and some of its most knowledgeable experts on Al-Qaeda, would no longer take part in the interrogations of the key prisoners. Abu Zubaydah had entered the realm of improvisation, of an interrogation program developed largely by two private contractors who had the distinction of never having carried out a single interrogation, and who were intent on reducing him, to quote the CIA's description of the program's intent, in a a memorandum to the Department of Justice a couple years later, to a baseline dependent state, to demonstrate that he has no control over basic human needs, to create a mindset in which he learns to perceive and value his personal welfare, comfort, and immediate needs more than the information he is protecting. Uh, These documents are fascinating exhibits in the production of bureaucratic language. Uh, By the time the combined use of interrogation techniques, which was codified in late 2004, uh, HVDs, high-value detainees, would have to immediately and, quote, willingly provide information on actionable threats and location information on high-value targets at large for interrogators to continue with the neutral approach, which is to say the gateway, once they arrived, they'd have to give up all the vital information that they were presumed to have to avoid being submitted... Uh, or subjected to these techniques. Failure to offer such immediate complete cooperation would would, uh, result in the HVD's entrance into the first conditioning phase, described as follows. A. Nudity. The HVD's clothes are taken. He remains nude until the interrogators provide clothes to him. B. Sleep deprivation. We've just heard about that. He's placed in the vertical shackling position, which Uh, uh, Abu Zubaydah, the first one, was subjected to long-term sitting. After that, it was vertical standing. Other shackling procedures may be used during interrogation. The detainee is diapered for sanitary purpose, although the diaper is not used at all times. Dietary manipulation, the HVD HVD is fed in Plus or other food at regular intervals. The bureaucratic language of the documents is striking. Uh, the procedures he is subjected to are pri- precise, quiet, and almost clinical, we read, and no one is mistreating him. And yet every once in a while, almost by chance, a bit of reality peeps through these documents. One interrogator who is chastised for blowing cigar smoke in a detainee's face claims he smokes the cigar, quote, to cover up the stench. Our minds go back to those diapers, which are used for humiliation as well as for sanitary purposes. And Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's description of the vertical shackling position, which by the time he was captured 11 months later, was used in preference to long-term sitting to begin sleep deprivation. This is the description of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. I was kept for one month in the cell in a standing position with my hands cuffed and shackled above my head and my feet cuffed and shackled to a point in the floor. So he's nude, hands are up on the ceiling, feet shackled to the floor, night and day. Of course, during this month, I fell asleep on some occasions while still being held in this position. This resulted in all my weight being applied to the handcuffs around my wrist, which resulted in open and bleeding wounds. Both my feet became very swollen after a month of almost continual standing. The Red Cross interviewer notes that, quote, scars consistent with this allegation were visible on both wrists as well as on both ankles. These details are well confirmed by accounts gathered independently from other detainees, one of whom, while he'd been a tosh who had just lost a leg fighting in Afghanistan, during the weeks and days he spent with his hands chained to the ceiling and his foot chained to the floor, received periodic visits from a doctor whose task was to measure the swelling in his remaining leg using a tape measure. Like nearly all of these enhanced interrogation techniques, long-term standing has a long tradition. The Soviets relied on it very heavily. In fact, it was one of their key techniques. They called it Stoika. Pondering the effectiveness of this simple method, Hinkle and Wolf, in their classic paper, I'm sure you all have read it, Communist Interrogation and Indoctrination of Enemies of the State, <laughs> observes that, quote, after 18 to 24 hours of continuous standing, there's an accumulation of fluid in the tissues of the legs. The ankles and feet of the prisoner swell to twice their normal circumference. The edema may rise up the legs as high as the middle of the thighs. The skin becomes tense and intensely painful. Large blisters develop which break and exude watery serum. Now, why am I reading you Soviet reports? Well, we should remember the contractors the CIA hired improvised this protocol from a program the Air Force had designed, quote, to simulate conditions to which pilots might be subject if taken prisoner by enemies. Who were the enemies during the Cold War? The Soviets, obviously, and the Chinese. And these were enemies, quote, that did not abide by the Geneva Conventions. Which is to say, seer training, as one former instructor told the Senate Armed Services Committee, I'm quoting from this report, was based on illegal exploitation of prisoners over the last 50 years. We see here perhaps the prime example of the improvisation inherent in the state of exception. It's not simply that the critical security bureaucracies, the CIA and the military, derived their enhanced interrogation techniques from a Cold War era pilot training program that had been intentionally designed to replicate illegal techniques and then placed before government attorneys the through the looking glass task of proving that those interrogation techniques are perfectly permissible under the tenets of international and domestic law that they were expressly designed to violate, meaning that a central tree of reasoning running through the so-called torture memos is the peculiar notion that because the pilot trainees who of course were volunteers who could halt the procedures at any time did not suffer for example long-term psychological harm then detainees subjected to these techniques as it were for real would not suffer that harm either very odd reasoning. It's also that an interrogation program deemed absolutely essential to protect the country during a national emergency was reverse engineered from a training program for pilots by contract instructors who had never carried out an interrogation. However much this might seem to be a fantasy, it's true. How can we begin to account for it? The country, after all, has had considerable experience in interrogating prisoners, not least during World War II, a time of no small national emergency, when the United States military managed to produce, in short order, an interrogation program that was legal subtle, and by all accounts, immensely effective. One begins to approach an answer by pointing to certain attitudes among government and bureaucracy held by the most senior and powerful figures in the Bush administration, notably the Vice President and the Secretary of Defense, and indeed the President. Ron Suskin remarks, sober due diligence with an eye for the way previous administrations have thought through a standard array of challenges facing the U.S. creates, in fact, a kind of check on executive power. This was what, precisely what the president didn't want after September 11th. He evolved, as Bush evolved from again, this is suskind, the pre 9 11 president who had little grasp of foreign affairs and made few decisions in that realm, to the post 9 11 president who met America's foreign challenges with decisiveness born of a brand of preternatural, faith based, self generated certainty. His view of right and wrong and of righteous actions, such as attacking evil or spreading God's gift of democracy, were undercut by the kind of traditional shades of gray analysis that has been the staple of most president lives. This hard, complex analysis would often be a thin offering passed through the filters of Cheney or Rice or not presented at all. That is, decisions were made by a tiny group with very little, if any, input from the democracy Uh, the interagency uh, or bureaucracy at all. The the bureaucracy continued worrying along, debating, presenting ideas and policies, but its recommendations were ignored, overtaken, or sometimes circumvented when it came to the state of exception. So when it came to something as consequential as the decision to use enhanced interrogation techniques, we have very little real record of a policy discussion at all, which is an astonishing thing. This is beyond Condoleezza Rice's approval of the initial Abu Zubeda plan on May 14, 2002. Phil Zellicoe, who was the executive director of the 9-11 Commission, uh, and later Rice's uh, counsel at the State Department, remarked that in this and other occasions, um, when the question should have been, what should, we do? what should we do? The question instead was, what can we do? and that the lawyers were called in rather than thinkers, policymakers, ethicists, something. There's little record of anyone ever discussing what we should do at all. We don't know precisely who had the idea and who discussed or how thoroughly, if at all, this rather astonishing reality of the state of exception uh, um, was discussed. Uh, the CIA, in Zellico's words, The CIA, an agency that had no significant institutional capability to question enemy captives, improvised an unprecedented, elaborate, systematic program of medically monitored physical torment to break prisoners and make them talk. So, experimentation, improvisation, inherent in these techniques, as they are, it seems to be inherent in the genes of the state of exception. Abu Zubaydah seems to realize this as he recounts the second phase the coercive corrective phase of his interrogation I want to quote again a little bit from him Two black wooden boxes were brought into the room outside my cell one was tall tall slightly higher than me and narrow The other was shorter perhaps only three and a half feet in height. So a kind of tall narrow coffin uh, and a short one I was taken out of my cell and one of the interrogators wrapped a towel around my neck Then he used it to swing me around and smash me repeatedly against the hard walls of the room. I also was repeatedly slapped in the face. I was then put into the tall black box for what I think was about one and a half to two hours. The box was totally black on the inside as well as the outside. They put a cloth or cover over the outside to cut out the light and restrict my air supply. It was difficult to breathe. When I was let out of the box, I saw that one of the walls of the room had been covered with plywood sheeting. From now on, it was against this wall that I was smashed with a towel around my neck. <clears throat> what about the appearance of this plywood? Abu Zubaydah himself suggests that the plywood was put there to provide some absorption of the impact of my body. The interrogators realized that smashing me against the hard wall would probably quickly result in physical injury. No doubt he's right. The plywood is the answer to the perennial problem of the torturer, how to inflict sufficient pain without causing injury of the sort that will make further exploitation of the detainee difficult or even impossible. Frequently in the documents we see these concerns embody themselves in the evolution of techniques and equipment. For example, the towel around Abu Zubaydah's neck had by the time of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed 11 months later become a quote, thick, flexible, plastic collar which would be placed around my neck so that it could then be held by the two ends by guards who would use it to slam me repeatedly against the wall. So the improvised towel becomes something that's obviously in some way manufactured. But where precisely between the first time Abu Zubaydah was smashed into the wall and then placed into the standing black coffin for close confinement and then emerged to be walled again, did that plywood actually come from? I suspect, suspect it was someone back at CIA headquarters. I have no... Proof of this in Langley, Virginia. As CIA officer John Kiriakou reminds us, each one of these steps had to have the the approval of the deputy director for operations. So before you laid a hand on him, you had to send in the cable saying, he's uncooperative, request permission to do X, and that permission would come. The cable traffic back and forth was extremely specific. Beyond the hour-by-hour approval of specific techniques issuing out of CIA headquarters came an assiduous effort to brief NSC policy staff and senior administration officials for the, quote, agency specifically wanted to ensure that these officials and the oversight committees of Congress um, uh, continues to be aware of and approve CIA actions. One detects here a further echo of the rhyming decade of the 70s and a determination by CIA leaders and officers that this time, however much national attitudes on these matters might change, after the emergency had passed, they would never be in the position of being accused of rogue behavior again. It's unclear whether they will have succeeded this time, but it's clear if anything in the history of the state of exception is that their concerns had the effects of ensuring that responsibility for this was spread very high and very wide indeed. Uh, I will say a bit more on this in a second as we finish, but let me follow up as a beta to the last corrective phase of the interrogation, what's called the coercive techniques, uh, which again, come in combination. Another reason why these legal memos are difficult to stomach is accurate because they don't evaluate these things in combination. After the beating, I was placed again in the small box. So th- these are excerpts. He's beaten repeatedly in between, etc. They placed a cloth or cover over the box to cut out all light and restrict my air supply. Uh, As it was not high enough even to sit upright, I had to crouch down. It was difficult because of my wounds. The stress on my legs meant that my wounds, both in the leg and stomach, became very painful. This occurred about three months after my last operation. It was always cold in the room, but when the cover was placed over the box, it made it hot and sweaty inside. The wound on my leg opened and began to bleed. I was then dragged from the small box, unable to walk properly, and put on what looked like a hospital bed and strapped down very tightly with belts. A black cloth was placed over my face, and the interrogators used a mineral water bottle. This water was kept in the refrigerator to keep it cold, to pour water on the cloth so that I could not breathe. After a few minutes, the cloth was removed, and the bed was rotated into an upright position. So he's on a kind of gurney that can go down and up. The pressure of the straps of my wounds was very painful. I vomited. The bed was then again lowered to a horizontal position, and the same procedure carried out again with a black cloth over my face and water poured from a bottle. On this occasion, my head was in a more backward-downwards position. Again, they're experimenting and trying out this technique. And the water was poured on for a longer time. I struggled against the straps trying to breathe, but it was hopeless. I thought I was going to die. I lost control of my urine. Since then, I still lose control of my urine when under stress. I was then placed again in the tall box. While I was inside the box, loud music was played again, and somebody kept banging repeatedly on the box from the outside. I tried to sit down on the floor, but because of the small space, the bucket with urine tipped over and spilt over me. I was taken out, and again, a towel was wrapped around my neck, and I was smashed into the wall with the plywood sheeting and repeatedly slapped in the face by the same two interrogators as before. I was then made to sit on the floor with a black hood over my head until the next session began. The room was always kept very cold. This went on for approximately a week. During this time, the whole procedure was repeated five times. On each occasion, apart from one, I was suffocated once or twice and was then put in the vertical position on the bed in between. On one occasion, the suffocation was repeated three times. I vomited each time I was put in the vertical position between the suffocation. During that week, I was not given any solid food, obviously, so he doesn't uh, choke. I was only given insured to drink. I collapsed and lost consciousness on several occasions. Eventually, the torture was stopped by the intervention of the doctor. Anyway, so this is the famous waterboarding that we've heard so much about. It's a time-honored technique. It goes back to the Inquisition in various forms. The French used it repeatedly in Algeria. Uh, They would beat a prisoner up as well, strip him, beat him up and usually uh, secure him to a bench with belts, and he would be lifted so his head would go back into a bucket of water, soapy water, dirty water, urine sometimes. Uh, It was also used by the Argentines during the Dirty War of the 70s, by the Salvadorans during the 80s. They called it El submarino. Uh, Techniques vary a good deal. Um, There's the bench. The Argentines put a kind of hinge uh, with the bucket, connecting the bucket and the bench. That was their innovation. Um, But the principle remains the same. You're drowning the prisoner, provoking the panic this causes, and interrupting the drowning in time to save his life. Uh, Which is to say, simulated drowning, which is the phrase that's used, is not really accurate. It's interrupted drowning. He He is, in fact, drowning. But you stop in time to prevent him dying, which is one of the reasons why... One of the evolutions you see is when Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was waterboarded 183 times, they put an oximeter on his finger to monitor the oxygen content in his blood, which they didn't do earlier on with with Abu Zubaydah. Uh, That American interrogators were were waterboarding detainees first appeared in the press in May 2004. Uh, This is another example, of course, of what I've called public secrecy. These two narratives, what was happening and what we know about what was happening, crossed very early, in fact. In late 2002, the first time Washington Post read a front page piece about these techniques. Uh, The New York Times followed a couple months later. Uh, And then in the wake of Abu Ghraib, we got an enormous amount of publicity about these techniques. We've known about it long enough, which is to say six years, to have had widely differing accounts. John Kiriakou, the CIA man, said in 2005 that When subjected to this, Abu Zubaydah instantly broke, instantly became compliant. After a few seconds, that was it. He decided, in Kiriakou's phrase, that he'd had a visit from Allah, and he should now cooperate. So waterboarding was said to be incredibly, uh, dramatically effective. Uh, We found out several years later that, in fact, Abu Zubaydah was waterboarded no less than 83 times. The last of these incidents uh, was ordered directly by headquarters, by senior officials, Uh, In the Bush administration and possibly in the vice president's office in the face of objections from the interrogators who argued that the first 82 applications had left the detainee compliant. Of the 11 enhanced interrogation techniques deemed legal, 10, according to John Yoo, did not even come close to the legal standard of torture, but waterboarding did. Uh, you you made a rather striking admission to the Department of Justice investigators who from the Office of Professional Responsibility that quote, I had actually thought that we prohibited waterboarding. I didn't recollect that we had actually said that you could do it. This is the man who wrote famously the original torture memos in the summer of 2001. Uh, He went on, the waterboarding as it's described in the memo is very different from the waterboarding that was described in the press And so when I read the description in the press of what waterboarding is, I was like, oh well, obviously that would be prohibited by the statute. Uh, It should be said, of course, that the International Committee of the Red Cross, which is legally charged with investigating and judging the treatment of prisoners, has no problem whatever declaring that this treatment, quote, amounted to torture. Uh, But use observation underlines what we have already seen with the vertical shackling technique applied to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Mohammed. the differences between what is prescribed in the legal and policy documents, in which waterboarding is described by you as a controlled acute incident, and what actually happens at the black sites, these differences can be quite dramatic. In waterboarding Abu Zubaydah, the interrogator used much more water, performed the procedure much more frequently than prescribed in the documents. Now, this is a kind of general drifting downward. We could call it integrator cruelty that we see throughout the various plot lines of this story, both in the military and in the intelligence services. I realize this is difficult to listen to. I'm coming to the end. Uh, Ali Soufan, the experienced FBI interrogator who carried out the initial interrogation um, using what he called the informed interrogation approach on Abu Zubaydah, explained this inevitable evolution to the Judiciary Committee last May. The harsh technique, he said, was to subjugate the detainee into submission through humiliation and cruelty. The approach applies a forced continuum, each time using harsher and harsher techniques until the detainee submits. The idea behind the technique is to force the detainee to see the interrogator as the master who controls his pain. So, the detainee is stripped naked, is told, Tell us what you know. If he doesn't immediately respond by giving lots of information, the next step on the force continuum is introduced. For example, sleep deprivation. The process continues until the detainee's will is broken and he automatically gives up the information he is presumed to know. Presumed is uh, Sufan's word. There are many problems with this technique, says Sufan. A major problem is that it is ineffective. Al Qaeda terrorists are trained to resist torture. Uh, This is an interesting analysis to me. As shocking as these techniques are to us, the al-Qaeda training prepares them for much worse, the torture they would expect to receive if caught by dictatorships, for example. That's why the contractors had to keep getting authorization to use harsher and harsher methods until they reached waterboarding. And then there was nothing they could do but use the technique again and again Abu Zubaydah had to be waterboarded 83 times, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed 183 times. Sufan concludes, in a democracy, there's a glass ceiling of harsh techniques. The interrogator cannot breach, and a detainee can eventually call the interrogators bluff. Though the interrogators eventually told Abu Zubaydah that, as he said, I was one of the first to receive these techniques, so no rules applied. They were experimenting, trying out techniques to be used later on other people. The rules, however much they were stretched, did, of course, apply. It's good to be reminded by Sufan as we close on this rather grim note of what can and cannot be done in a democracy and to ponder the notion that we as a society can, both, can be both too cruel and not cruel enough. Abu Zubaydah, of course, is still with us in his eighth year of U.S. detention, now at Guantanamo, his fourth year at Guantanamo. And it's difficult gazing at him to embrace fully the presiding philosophy of the Obama administration on these matters, to look forward, not back. Impossible gazing at him and the questions he embodies not to think as well of his partners in these scenes a half dozen years ago. Many, of course, have moved on to private law firms, to corporate security jobs, even to universities. But the story's not over. The documents are full of the drama of the interrogators and the officials of the CIA demanding that they be granted, if not a Department of Justice declination letter, which is to say an advance immunity for anything they might do, then at least a golden shield that it would eventually protect them from prosecution. Of course, they received one, indeed a series of them, in the so-called torture memos produced by John Yoo and his successors, and later in the Military Commission Act passed by the Congress in 2006, As we gaze back today on this sunny day at these ghostly figures, at the policymakers sitting in their office who ordered these techniques, the lawyers who deemed them legal and the interrogators who performed them on men chained naked in white sunless cold rooms, we can have the sense, haunting as it is, that they are all looking forward at us as we stand here today judging what they did. For if we know anything, It's that they knew, all of them, that this moment would come. In this sense, the state of exception, enduring as it is, has inscribed within it a chronicle of a scandal foretold and an unending open question for us as a society. What is to be done? This is not the least potent sense in which we find ourselves still imprisoned within the state of exception. That imprisonment and the normalization that accompanies it, I will take up during tomorrow's lecture. And it remains for me to thank you very sincerely for your attention in this difficult subject. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.